Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Happy Friday to all of you, no matter where you live in the world. Well, it seems from the looks of things that um, we're definitely off to a good start um, with this uh, new podcast series, uh, being Tales from a Revolution, Bacon's Rebellion, and the Transformation of Early America uh, by James D. Rice. I've seen that... Um, that uh, many people have uh, tuned in um, from the prologue, and that's just a, a very good encouraging sign because it tells me that all of you uh, are continuously eager to learn uh, something that you already probably know about but don't know enough about the uh, matter uh, until now. So that's that's a good thing because just when we think we know everything there is to know about a particular um, historical subject, we're often um, realizing that there are many other twists and turns and um, new pieces of evidence that make the story all the more worth um, learning about compared to what may have been taught to us from uh, previous uh, years. It's like my dad uh, once told me, he said, you know, Kirk, um, when I was growing up, the books didn't tell us that information. But then again, uh, there may not have been a whole lot of uh, research available on a particular uh, topic that had been um, that had been um, shared with us. So, in other words, you know, back in the '50s, there would have been no such thing as Wikipedia or the internet. If you wanted to learn about something, you obviously had to uh, read a book about it or um, or do um, you know, research uh, without uh, via electronics. Of course, I can say that there was a time when I was growing up when um, I didn't have access to a, an internet or a Wikipedia, and that was okay. Um, I can still say that I survived, but I relied upon um, traditional ways of obtaining research that it, that did not involve have using a computer. And not that there's nothing wrong with using a computer to obtain historical um, information. It's just that uh, we have to be reminded that at certain times technology uh, was limited as to what we could and uh, could not attain right on the spot. So with podcasting, uh, it's just good to know that, um, that all of you who have been such ardent listeners are constantly wanting to come back and learn more uh, regardless of the topic that is brought before you all. So uh, I know many of you are wondering what are we going to be talking about in this uh, segment to uh, Tales from a Revolution. Well, we're going to learn about um, what life, not so much what life was like in 1675, but really what the first couple of months to 1675 entailed. We're going to learn about um, life, in a sense, along the Chesapeake around the Virginia-Maryland border and how um, those inhabitants living in Virginia and Maryland, most notably along the border with the Chesapeake Bay around them, how they, um, how they um, not only interact with one another, but their relations with other peoples. And what I mean by other peoples is Indians. So we have a lot of ground to cover, so let's fasten our seatbelts and uh, get ready to go. So our first leadoff question is the following. 
How, how were the first uh, couple of months in 1675 best described by those whose homes, and what I mean by homes, folks, in 1675, I'm not talking about suburban homes. I'm not talking about urban homes. What I'm referring to as homes from a 1675 standpoint are those that uh, comprise of plantations along the Potomac River. The Potomac River encompasses both Virginia and Maryland. So how were the first couple of months in 1675 best described by those whose homes being uh, plantations given that they lied along the Potomac River? Well, for starters, the very beginning of 1675 became filled with imminent warnings. Imminent meaning um, you know, dangerous, imminent meaning that something is about to happen within a short matter of time. So the very beginning of 1675 became filled with imminent warnings based upon observations from the sky. Of course, when I think of warnings from the sky, I think of weather. You know, this the, the clouds turning really dark, and they're so dark to where Either a bad thunderstorm is going to occur, or let alone if the conditions are right, maybe a tornado. So yes, when when the clouds turn dark, usually I think of a thunderstorm or a potential tornado. However, that's not what was at stake here. The observations from the sky consisted spotting a large comet that loomed around for nearly an entire week. Usually when you see a comet in the sky, if you have the right um, you know, telescope in modern day time, you if when a comet goes by, you know, it's moving very, very quick. But once it goes by and it's no longer visible, then you could say it's completed its um orbit in the sky. But Observers witnessed this large comet for nearly an entire week. And if that wasn't odd enough, observers along the Potomac River, rather I should say observers whose homes lied along the Potomac River, also came upon massive clusters of passenger pigeons roaming over the skies day in and day out, whose behaviors resulted in tree limbs cracking and splintering so loudly that the results came about with a thunderous crashing sound. Now, we see, we see pigeons in parks, we see pigeons, you know, in cities. Um, pigeons are common birds, but most of you probably know about the passenger pigeons, but some of you may not. Passenger pigeons were prevalent for many years. They were so prevalent that when they came over the sky that there was clusters of them. It wasn't just three or four flying over the sky. I mean, you could have herds of hundreds flying over. Well, sadly, passenger pigeons were ruthlessly hunted. And this was during a time when there were no laws on the book regulating hunting. 
It wouldn't be until 1918 when Congress uh, passed a law that I believe it was called the uh, Migratory Bird Act that uh, had to do with uh, curtailing um, hunting. In other words, the uh, restrictions were put into play as to when hunting could go on and when it was not allowed. So for a long time, um, in colonial America's existence, and even before the 20th century, people could hunt whenever they wanted to. And while there was nothing wrong with that in terms of sustaining uh, food for the family, if overhunting occurred, then the populations of various um, game animals took longer to repopulate. The Indians were smart in that their hunting occurred in the fall and the winter, most notably with wild game like deer and bear, but they never engaged in any hunting in the spring and summer because that was a time for the animals to repopulate, most notably the wild game animals. So sadly, passenger pigeons were ruthlessly hunted to where their numbers never recovered, and the last um, known surviving passenger pigeon died in 1914 at the Cincinnati, Ohio Zoo. So... 108 years ago, folks, um, we lost um, a very valuable species of bird. What I found hard to believe was that um, in 1675, observers who, whom resided along the Potomac River had come upon these uh, had come upon passenger pigeons being this massive cluster of them that were coming day in and day out, and their behaviors were so odd that. It resulted in tree limbs cracking and splintering. The uh, And thirdly, uh, there were flying insects. Well, of course, when I think of flying insects, I might think of like a dragonfly. But it turns out that the flying insects that the um, people along the Potomac River came upon were locusts. Of course, when I think of locusts, I tend to think of them being like in Africa, for example, or in other parts of the world. But locusts uh, made their way along the um, along the Potomac River region. They began eating everything in sight around the planters' estates without boundaries. They basically devoured everything they could get their hands on. Observers, or rather, I should say, plantation aristocratic peoples like Thomas Matthew, whom lived along the Potomac River, last recalled a passenger pigeon encounter 30 years earlier during 1644, or rather the year of 1644, which ironically became um, famous for the final um, Indian uprising led by Opechancano. It might as well have been the equivalent to um, 1876 with uh, Custer's last stand, but the last uh, the last big stand that the Indians were able to uh, muster in terms of whatever um, last-ditch hopes they had in ridding the Europeans once and for all occurred in 1644, where they did massacre 500 uh, colonists, but sadly it wasn't enough. Like the comet... The presence of birds in large numbers represented a sign of imminent danger. So interesting enough that even 30 years before um, 1675 and 1644 with the, the final Indian uprising and the presence of uh, 
passenger pigeons, that must have represented a bad omen that a terrible um, incident was going to occur, being an uprising. Is it fair to say that that 30 years later in 1675, with the with huge clusters of passenger pigeons coming through, that there could be sign of, signs of trouble again? Yes. But little do the people know that little do they know that something will happen. They just don't know where it's going to be. That's the hard part. So these uh, the presence of birds in large numbers, yes, represented a sign of imminent danger. Planters living along the Potomac River's lower end, they lived along farms that were not joined to one another, but were connected by rivers along with narrow road paths. So we have to, you know, think to ourselves what kind of living arrangements, not just living arrangements, but the layout of the land during this time. It was much, much different compared to today's um, landscape and based upon where houses might be uh, located along waterways, to say the least. Thomas Matthew, uh, I read a little bit about him in this book, um, he was a one-time London merchant. His plantation estate was near the entrance of the Potomac River at what is called Cherry Point, which was the widest point of all rivers that flowed into the Chesapeake Bay. He owned land in Stafford County, which is not far from uh, Fredericksburg, uh, north of where I live. A majority of the neighbors whom Thomas Matthew knew were Indians. Okay, so given that he lives um, on the Virginia side of the uh, Potomac River, he must not be too far from Maryland, correct? That's correct. So on the Virginia um, side of the Potomac River, you have Indians like the Chicagoans and the Onamonians. Then on the Maryland side, you have what are called the Piscataways and the Susquehannocks. Of course, when I think of Piscataway, I think of Piscataway, New Jersey. Then you have a group of Indians that are both on the Virginia and the Maryland side. They are referred to as Doegs, D-O-E-G-S, Doegs or Doegs. The reason why they are called Doegs is because they are referred to as displaced Indians whom were displaced from previous uh, villages where they had ancestral roots for years. So the Doegs are displaced Indians from many towns whom simply lost their ancestral lands. It's probably fair to say that the Doegs, regardless of whether they're on the Virginia or the Maryland side, probably have a greater population than, um, than the uh, Chicagoans, the Onamonians, the Piscataways, and the Susquehannocks. That's just my take, but it's uh, probably very possible, to say the least. Uh, did Thomas Matthew and his neighbors, did they often trade with Indians on the Virginia and Maryland side of the Potomac River? Yes, they did. Thomas Matthews and his brethren provided Indians with metal tools and cloth, just to name a few things. I could see how the metal tools would have come in hand because even back in 1607 when the first group of Englishmen arrived to Jamestown, 
Um, yes, the Indians provided them with food, but what did the English provide in return? Metal tools and copper pots, which the Indians deemed to be very, very valuable because they had never come across in uh, Virginia um, metals being that of metal tools and that of copper pots. The Indians, in return, gave, the, um, gave Thomas Matthews and his neighbors wild game, dug out canoes, canoes that had been dug out that, Tom, that Matthews and his men could use for uh, navigating the, the, um, the waters of the Potomac River, to animal pelts and skins. Of course, when I think of pelts, I think of beaver pelts, skins being that of deer or of, or of bear. When did the first signs of trouble begin for Thomas Matthew? There always has to be some incident or something that will set something off in chain or set something off to where the first signs of a fuse will evolve. The fuse may not be lit at that moment, but all it takes is one small incident to start a chain of other ones that will lead to the granddaddy of them all. So when did the first signs of trouble begin for Thomas Matthews? Well, for one, he took advantage of some Doig peoples where payment for certain trade goods did not get made in full. Well, if you, don't, if you can't pay in full, that's not a good sign. And if you say left and right, I'll promise to pay you back for the rest of it next time and you don't even make that promise, then uh, relationships become fractured. Okay, so he has, um, sadly, Mr. Matthews has felt it's appropriate to take advantage of some of the Doeg peoples where payment for certain trade goods um, didn't get made in full. Secondly, given Virginia's courts did not provide much relief toward Indians, the Doeg peoples took matters into their own hand by going across the Potomac River from Maryland to Virginia where they lured and trapped multiple hogs belonging to Thomas Matthews, only to take them for their um, fulfillment purposes on the Maryland side. Once the English got word of this, they um, got into their boats, being that of a canoe, and set out in revenge. And thirdly, skirmishes came about. Confrontation probably is more appropriate than skirmish to where the Indians, uh, being that of the Doegs, launched bows and arrows at the English. The English retaliated with gunshots. So violence is being exchanged by both parties, where the end result saw the Englishmen recover the hogs. Okay, they recovered the hogs, but they, saw, but they got revenge. They administered beatings to those surviving Doegs whom returned home in disgrace. So it's one thing to have um, engaged in acts of violence, and it's one thing to have gotten your hogs back, but now all of a sudden you're administering beatings to the enemy? A little barbaric in terms of resolution, but hey, sadly this went on, and it was a norm. However, I should point out that the conflict did not start over stolen pigs or murdered Doeg peoples. Okay, well, if the conflict didn't necessarily start over the stolen pigs or the murdered Doeg peoples, 
what did it what really did entail the greater um conflict to where the first uh fuse the first signs of lighting the fuse did in fact happen well it turned out that one of thomas matthew's handsmen or rather a partner being that of a mr robert hen he had been viciously attacked by a doeg person but right before he died he said that he had been attacked by displaced indians being the doegs so a team of 30 men led a raid into maryland where violence erupted leading to 10 doegs being shot and killed think about it people don't sit are not sitting down and taking the time to get their facts straight they're they just want gratification right away and if it means resorting to violence as a means of resolving the problem and asserting their authority over another um, group of peoples then the group who's in power will do whatever it takes it doesn't make it right but to me it sounds like what's going on here is eye for an eye tooth for a tooth if one party's hurting us we're going to hurt them back in return so it's bad enough now that 10 doegs have been shot and killed. But right before another doeg met, could have met his tragic fate, he shouted out of nowhere to a Colonel George Mason that, that his people were rather, that, his, that Indian friends had murdered Robert Hen, not the doeg nation or not the Doeg peoples, okay, well then, whom, in terms of Indian friends, in this uh, Doeg's, Doeg's mind's eyes, would have been responsible for murdering Robert Hen? The answer was the Susquehannocks, okay? Well, does it uh, calm Colonel George Mason any more? No. Now that this Doeg Indian has said that the Susquehannocks had murdered Robert Hen, Colonel William has rushed into further judgment, or rather I should say he has rushed further into irrational thinking, given, given in large part because, you know, he's desperate on seeking revenge, but he does not know just how fundamental the presence of the Susquehannocks have been. So we're going to find out here in a moment why the presence of the Susquehannocks is, has been so vital. Were the Susquehannocks close allies to Virginia? Yes, they have been close allies for roughly 50 years. So is it fair to say that the Susquehannocks, their alliance or whatever close ties they've had to those in Virginia um, can be traced back to the early 1620s, even in the midst after the 1622 uprising took place? The answer is yes. So the Susquehannocks had been close allies for roughly 50 years and come 1673 were invited to live in Maryland. Why would they have been asked to be invited to live in Maryland? Well, it turns out that Maryland served as a protective barrier 
against enemy Indian nations to the north, most notably the Iroquois nation. So think about it, folks. Um, Maryland, okay, of course, north of Maryland, you have Pennsylvania, and of course, north of Pennsylvania is New York. Maryland can serve as a buffer, or rather, it can serve as a protective barrier to protect those whom feel threatened by Indian nations like the Iroquois, for example, who um, who are uh, a very, very powerful tribe. And as a matter of fact, we're going to uh, learn more here in a moment about the Iroquois and why um, the Susquehannocks um, went about choosing to come to uh, Maryland. As for Colonel George Mason, he's... He's not a friend to the Indians, but in the midst of what has taken place, he decides to change his attitude by telling those around him that the Susquehannocks were friends, not enemies. That doesn't mean that everything is so much better that everybody's going to live happily ever after now. No, but Colonel George Mason is finally coming to his senses and realizing that, hey, look, maybe I need to not rush to judgment here, and that the Susquehannocks are supposed to be our friends, not enemies. Although tensions did de-escalate, but as for those in the Susquehannock nation, they never fully got over the mistaken attack. Can you blame them? No, because they've seen a lot of other misfortunes. Misfortunes that might have happened in in uh, Maryland, or not Maryland, but in Pennsylvania, and elsewhere up north, based upon um, where they might have previously uh, settled, where they could have come into uh, conflict with other Indian nations, and let alone even with Europeans. You know, yes, Indians and Europeans probably did have their moments when they were on peaceful terms, but it was never one hundred. Probably, it was never one hundred percent. Um, peaceful. There was always some form of constant uh, turmoil. All it would take is a few innocent actions, or not innocent actions, but a few random acts. A few random acts that could just make or break, and not just for short term, but long term. So, a fellow by the name of Monges, or Monges, M-O-N-G-E-S, he was the uh, Susquehannock's war leader. He was the one that never fully got over the mistaken attack. Others within the Susquehannock nation probably didn't either, but Monges took it rather very personal. Now, prior to 1673, when the Susquehannocks came into Maryland, where had they previously been established? For starters, they were Iroquoian, meaning they lived primarily up north or in uh, what we now know as the northeastern United States. But they lived more so around um, nearby uh, Susquehanna River in present-day Pennsylvania. I should point out that the Susquehanna River, like the Potomac, the James River, the York River, um, the Shenandoah River, just to name a few rivers, those rivers flow into the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, the Chesapeake Bay is one of the largest estuaries in the United States. And for those of you who aren't sure what Chesapeake means, um, the uh, Powhatan Nation referred to it as abundance of shellfish. 
And for any of you who uh, have not been to uh, Jamestown before, when you go to Jamestown, uh, as a matter of fact, that's where I learned about it. Um, when I went, my wife and I went to Jamestown once. I mean, we've been many of times, but one time we went to Jamestown. That's where I uh, learned uh, what Chesapeake itself meant, meaning abundance of shellfish. So, yes, Susquehanna River, when you think of Susquehanna River, think of that as um, one of many rivers uh, being that of a tributary that flows right into the heart of uh, the Chesapeake Bay. So, besides uh, being in present-day Pennsylvania um, in areas surrounding the Susquehannock River, the um, Susquehannocks also lived in uh, what we now know as the present-day southern tier, uh, re southern tier area of New York State. And if, in case any of you aren't familiar with the southern tier New York, uh, southern tier New York State, that's uh, south of the Finger Lakes, where my wife and I uh, vacationed a few weeks back. But when you think of southern tier New York, think of Elmira, Corning, Horseheads, Painted Post. Um, basically, the uh, the cities that would or towns that would lie right on the uh, New York Pennsylvania line. Um, you know, when I think of uh, cities in Pennsylvania that are right on the uh, Pennsylvania New York line, uh, going towards um, the southern tier New York area, in Pennsylvania, I think of Scranton, I think of Williamsport, um, just to name a few, and other. Um, Areas in New York State that are considered southern tier, I would think of uh, Binghamton, uh, Endicott, and uh, Vestal, Johnson City. So, where the uh, Susquehannocks lived, be, besides present-day Pennsylvania and what we now know as present-day southern tier New York State, most notably in southern tier New York State, they were not far by from the Five Nation, or what we call the Iroquois uh, Confederacy, which was a, in the Iroquois Nation, um, they um, had lots and lots of uh, territory. The Susquehannocks uh, began losing their power in the 16th and the 17th centuries due to ever-increasing rise of power from within the Five Nations, or the Iroquois Confederacy, and does anybody want to take a guess at the uh, at the five uh, tribes that made up the Iroquois Confederacy, or what was known as the Five Nations? If you don't know, that's okay, but I'm going to tell you. The Mohawks, when you think of the Mohawks, think of uh, the Mohawk Valley in New York State, which is not far from Syracuse. Oneida, there's Oneida County, which is not far from Syracuse. There's uh, Oneida Lake. Onondaga, the Onondagas, rather, there's uh, Onondaga Lake, Onondaga County, which is where Syracuse is. Then you have the Cayugas. So when I think of Cayugas, I think of Cayuga Lake, which is in the Finger Lakes. And then there is Cayuga County. And then there's the Senecas. So when I think of Senecas, I think of Seneca Lake. I think of uh, Seneca Falls, which is on the northern end of Seneca Lake. Or on the uh, on the northern end of Cayuga Lake, rather I should say. Of course, when I think of Seneca Lake, I think of uh, places like Watkins Glen to the south. I think of um, Geneva to the north, to name a few uh, places along Seneca Lake. And one way to remember uh, Seneca Lake, uh, just remember that it's not only the deepest of the Finger Lakes, but it's also deeper than Lake Erie. 
So I could see how for the Susquehannocks, they are losing their power and it and it's really concerning them. Why do you think they could be um, losing their power? Well, oftentimes Indian nations would within a region would go to war with each other. And why would they go to war? They would go to war over land authority. In other words, they would engage in a whole host of um, warlike activities. And once these warlike activities commenced, or rather ended, whomever stood victorious uh, would be the ones to control the land that had once belonged to another Indian nation in the region. It didn't mean that the that the Indian re, that the Indian nation whom lost their lost land would be kicked out for good. It just meant that the victor reigned supreme above all others, and it seemed as though the Iroquois nation, or rather the five nations, were in were on a, on such a roll to that to where they couldn't be stopped, and so now for the Susquehannocks, they are beginning to wonder. Okay, now that the Iroquois have taken over the southern tier part of New York State and what we now know is um, our area, the areas surrounding the Susquehanna in uh, Pennsylvania, where do we go next? All right, let's find this out. Who was Herignera? He is spelled H-A-R-I-G-N-E-R-A, Herignera. Herignera became referred to or known as the Susquehannock's great man, whom helped persuade Maryland's legislature in letting his people take up residence within the same territory already occupied by the Piscataways along the Potomac River. And where the uh, Susquehannocks uh, relocated to in Maryland was 25 miles down the river from present-day Washington, D.C. So it is hard to imagine, folks, that what we now know as present-day Washington, D.C., in the late 17th century, the final half of the 17th century, was occupied um, not only by the Piscataways, but also by the Susquehannocks. Harignora Mangas and the rest of the Susquehannock peoples struggled in the aftermath of Colonel Mason's attack on their cabin. Those whom were murdered needed remembrance. How would they, why would they need remembrance? Well, when someone dies, whether it's from natural causes, unexpectedly, or, or dying unexpectedly, they need to be remembered. Their spirits must never be forgotten. And of course, whenever um, an Indian tribal member died, it was a big deal. There had to be some form of closure. Oftentimes, um, even in the midst of unforeseen circumstances, warfare would have been the primary choice. But the Piscato, but the um, Susquehannocks saw that going to war or realize that going to war was not in their cards. Sim simply because if they went to war, who are they going to attack? The Piscataways. So the fear of attacking the Piscataways 
and not just the Piscataways, but how about colonists in Maryland? If the uh, Susquehannocks attack the Piscataways along with capturing the colonists in Maryland, if they do all that, what is that going to mean? Expulsion? Perhaps execution? If they are expelled, they're going to have they're going to be left on their own and fending for themselves. I mean, the Maryland legislature didn't have to go along with what Herignora proposed, but at the same time, Maryland realizes that hey, the Iroquois presence is getting stronger and stronger up north, and while it may be up north, given that they are coming into Pennsylvania, which borders Maryland, that should be a sign right there that hey, if we want to strengthen our protective barriers, then we need to bring the Susquehannocks in. If we have the Susquehannocks and the Piscataways now in Maryland, and with whatever Doeg um, tribes people, then we have a better shot at um, being able to protect ourselves against uh, the almighty, powerful Iroquois nation. Whom had been Virginia's governor since 1641? Anybody want to take a guess? I can tell you this much, it's not John Smith. John Smith, on the other hand, um, he might as well have been governor of Virginia when he, uh, in the early years of the James, in the um, first um, few months of Jamestown's existence. After all, he was the one that said, thou who shall not work shall not eat. I mean, he was proven to be an, an effective leader. But John Smith has already passed away um, before 1641. He died, I believe, in uh, 1631 it was. So the answer is not John Smith, but the answer is, rather, William Berkeley. William Berkeley was a leader whom had proven himself to be an effective diplomat behind Indian relations. Well, you would think if he had been an effective diplomat behind Indian relations that Whatever he has done left and right has been so good to where the English and the, and the Indians seem to get along all the time. Well, I'll tell you all this right here. Governor Berkeley was responsible for helping suppress the final uprising of the Powhatan Nation under Opechancanough from 1644 to 1646. He also went about disrupting Indian alliances resulting in keeping potential warfare at minimal levels. You know, alliances are important, but disrupting an alliance sometimes is not always a good thing. But why do you think Governor Berkeley did go about disrupting alliances? Was he afraid that if, if some Indian tribes got too close to one another, that they would... Um, that they would do things to the English that would make relations even more complicated, perhaps? Is it fair to say that, that he didn't believe that um, tribes should get so close to one another? There are a lot of reasons for this. Perhaps by, by his going about disrupting Indian alliances, maybe it was his version of checks and balances. In other words, he didn't want one Indian nation overpowering the other to the point where um, one Indian nation would have reigned so supreme that um, other Indian nations would have um, either turned their backs on people like Governor Berkeley, they would have turned their backs on on others in general to where um, 
to where um, tensions would have been worse or 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 rather um, tensions would have been so bad to where the uh, those whom were uh, displaced would have um, ratted out uh, the government. There are a lot of unknowns, but what I do know is that Governor Berkeley did disrupt Indian alliances that, in his eyes, were successful enough to prevent potential warfare from truly escalating. Although Virginia's population increased dramatically under uh, Governor Berkeley, I mean, it went from 8,000 to 30,000, which is pretty remarkable. The older he became, um, saw, issue, saw certain issues not going away, most notably tobacco, being uh, Virginia's dominant cash crop. Of course, uh, tobacco uh, reigned king in Virginia. Matter of fact, it was the, ca it was the crop that saved the colony. It became so profitable that, really, in a sense, it was addictive. People grew it left and right like there was no tomorrow, although it is fair to say that tobacco was used for many things. Well, for one, tobacco was used to help pay off debts. Tobacco was even used to give to uh, ministers who performed wedding ceremonies. Just to name a few things of um, what tobacco did uh, to help those... Um, in times of need. So, how is it that um, that there are issues with tobacco that that does not seem to um, bode well? Well, tobacco. I, I should say this uh, before I get into that. Is it fair to say that uh, tobacco that tobacco as a crop had significant impacts upon Virginia society? Yes. Did it have impacts upon settlement patterns in terms of where people settled in Virginia? Sure. How about Indian relations? Yes. Now, is it fair to say that when the first uh, group of Englishmen came to the New World in 1607 and what we now know as uh, Jamestown, true or false, were Indians already growing tobacco before the English arrived? True. What was the difference between um, the, the Indians' tobacco and the, uh, the tobacco that would eventually be uh, grown and successfully um, harvested and, and successfully uh, profitable? Well, the Indians grew uh, tobacco that was, um, it was something um, rustica. In other words, it was a, it was a very strong um, taste. It was a uh, harsh um, it was it left a very harsh um, harsh smell. It was um, a powerful um, odious uh, substance. Of course, the Indians uh, used tobacco. They grew tobacco, but it was more for uh, ceremonial purposes in terms of their use for it. Uh, the English grew tobacco that was of a sweeter kind. As a matter of fact, John Rolfe. Um, introduced the uh, tobacco seed, I, I want to say it came from, um, in Spain it was, that uh, was successfully harvested in Virginia, and it grew um, so well that, yes, people became addicted to growing tobacco, and yes, profits soared, but the good times don't last forever, because the key to planting tobacco meant access to good land. Just because you have land, 
it doesn't always mean that it might be the best quality land. It might not mean that the land that you've inherited or are establishing a home on, it may not necessarily mean that that land is going to yield you uh, good fruits. In other words, good uh, the fruits of your labor. In other words, if you don't have enough hired helpers, who's to say that you're going to really be able to um, to get a good uh, crop yield? So, the, yes, the key to planting tobacco meant access to good land. But men whom were not established, that is, newcomers, those whom were not already established were more, were more vulnerable considering the further west they settled, which would have meant past the fall line, the fall line being the line that separated the coastal plain and the Piedmont. If they went uh, further past the Piedmont, this meant greater difficulty. One thing it meant in terms of disadvantage is that it meant greater difficulty behind transporting the tobacco to the markets. Where do you think the markets would have been? Well, to me, they would have been um, near um, bodies of water like rivers. Think about it. Tobacco warehouses would have been stored near uh, waterfronts to where once the tobacco got placed in barrels of hogshead, they would have been easily transported on the ships who, that would have taken the uh, tobacco uh, 3,000 miles across the ocean to England. So the further west you go, the the more difficult it's going to be in terms of transporting your um, tobacco to market. Not to get off subject, but, you know, Thomas Jefferson's estate, Monticello, is not far from the Ravana River, and there were times where Jefferson transported uh, goods from the Ravana uh, River that would meet up with the James in Richmond, but he found the Ravana River to be uh, difficult. It was too shallow of water, so he, whenever he um, went to Poplar Forest out in Bedford County, the lands he owned there, he would uh, he found it easier to transport goods by means of uh, bateau boats from uh, Lin from uh, Bedford County to Richmond. The James River was much more deeper and. Uh, there were not as many issues as the Ravana. So, yes, you could be near water further west, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that your goods could arrive to market completely intact. Now, were the majority of newcomers to Virginia in the 1670s, were they considered young Englishmen? Yes, many of them went about serving as indentured servants for four to seven years, and they performed the same work as slaves. But economic opportunities for indentured servants had been declining to where those whom served, whom survived a servitude worked in lower-tier farming positions, being that of tenants, whom were forced to rent out land to living along frontier territory, being that of what we would refer to as the Wild West, uh, no man's land. The start of 1670 saw about a 20% decline in non-elite planters whom owned servants or slaves, making it hard. What do you think a planter would have needed, folks? Not just land, 
but if a planter has land that is suited that is suited for growing tobacco he needs a wife if a if a planter does not have good land and given that there's already a 20% decline in non-elite planters land values are down folks so therefore it's going to make it very very hard for a newcomer to be able to attract a wife if he can't offer a wife if he can't offer his wife quality in terms of good land good crops that result in good income then how is he going to be able to prove that he can make a living so these are very very um tough times uh, but you know we should point out that there are more men than women even in the 1670s in virginia there is also another factor to think about too folks when planting tobacco what does tobacco do to soil it depletes soil if you um if you overproduce tobacco, that is, over, the overproduction in tobacco, will that mean an increase or decrease in tobacco prices? It's going to mean a decrease in tobacco prices. And so overproduction in tobacco means that not only is there a decrease in tobacco prices, but it also, whom will it negatively impact? It won't negatively impact the uh, plantation aristocracy because they make up one to two percent they'll be okay the vast majority of farmers are small and middling planters farmers the middling planters are the ones whom usually are making about 12 pounds a year and if they need something to protect their family with in terms of um, a rifle or a musket they're not going to buy a rifle they're going to buy a musket a musket will cost them probably about six pounds but the average middling uh, planter family is making 12 pounds a year. So they're going to be, uh, they're going to see the, um, Im they're going to see the negative impact and how it's impacting them based upon overproduction and tobacco. So historians know that um, after about three uh, successful harvests or plantings of tobacco on a particular piece of land, the soil has become so depleted that what do um, the English do next? Well, they go to the next available um, land, and if there are Indians there, that's going to lead to further conflict. So the bigger issue that people don't realize is that Indians and settlers were, yes, fighting over proper use of land, but for the settlers, they didn't practice crop rotation whatever crop rotation they did practice it was not uh, consistent the indians only grew the tobacco when they needed to the settlers were so addicted to it that they just kept growing it like there was no tomorrow and while yes tobacco helped helped people uh, on a personal level in terms of paying off debts while yes tobacco was given to ministers who performed um, marriage uh, ceremonies wedding ceremonies all that's great but there does come a price that ultimately has to be paid for when uh, the overproduction of tobacco takes place. Supply and demand don't always equal out for the better. 
Now, was the Virginia colony at war during the early 1670s? Yes. From 1672 to 1674, the Virginia colony, under the Crown's discretion, was ordered to build an expensive fort at the entrance of the Chesapeake Bay to prevent the Dutch from entering. But the fort alone could not stop the enemy from sinking to capturing multiple vessels. And doesn't this involve money, folks? Yes. Okay. If taxes are raised, how how is this going to be done? In it's you know we don't have a Federal Reserve, folks. So how can uh, taxes be um, done? They can only be done via tobacco, and this is how taxes were collected. So think about it, folks. Taxes were collected via tobacco, but heavy taxes alone placed greater burdens on small, lower-tier planters, including the middling planters, whom did not grow much tobacco, and even if they did grow some tobacco, they had really they had little means of uh, being able to uh, sell it, because if they sold it, they probably wouldn't get. Um, a uh, respectable um, profit for it in return. So for the uh, small, for the little guys, like the small and lower tier planters, they are the ones that are feeling the greater um, impacts on the heavy taxes. Governor Berkeley viewed the Virginia colony's struggling planters, including servants and slaves, as big of a threat, just like the Dutch themselves posed. Despite his success in, in being able to thwart recent uprisings, Governor Berkeley is not interested in war. I don't blame him for not being interested in war, but the problem is that if you view struggling planters and servants as, and slaves as, as a real big threat... Is it fair to say that you could be burning bridges? Yes. And if this problem doesn't go, um, if the problem continues to go unchecked and nothing's done to resolve the problem, could it lead to something big to where it might catch the governor off guard? Perhaps. So Governor Berkeley, he's been governor for a little over 30 years. He's seen successes. He has seen um He's seen ups and downs, but I'm beginning to wonder if what is happening now at the start of the 1670s could lead to an inevitable downfall. Well, thank you for your time as always. I look forward to being back on the air. And when I'm uh, back on the air again next, we're going to learn more about um, Maryland and how Maryland and Virginia both have some things in common in terms of um, in terms of how to try to go about maintaining peace, even when there is, um, what do you call it, even when there's not 100% um, unity on, um, on an assortment of um, issues. Well, um, wherever you all may live, I hope all of you have a good weekend and uh, continue to um, get the word out with uh, the podcasting because uh, I, I want to thank all of you for being such ardent listeners without you guys. I'm not sure where I would be. So thank you again uh, for everything, but continue to get that word out. 
Take care for now and stay safe.